The title of the talk is Abiding in Emptiness. <coughs> Before I, I go to the basis of the talk, let me just recap what I've been talking about in the last couple of days. On Friday, I talked about our compulsion to file away, away our experience of life into distinct compartments, into distinct cubiholes of our mind. And then on Saturday, I invited you to drop this project altogether and to begin to see life with fresh eyes. Fine. Problem is, however, that this is easier said than done. Right? Why is that so? Largely because much of the stuff that we have filed away in our mind has become part of who we think we are. And so, in order to see life's life with fresh eyes, we first have to empty our space right here, our inner space, of all that egocentric paraphernalia. We have to drop, if not definitively, at least momentarily, our compulsion to see ourselves performing on the stage. We have to forget our script, which is meant to remind us times and times again who we think we are. Can we do this? Can we empty our inner space? Yes, we can, at least on occasion. And even if some such occasions may be brief, they are significant because they show us that it's possible to become free from the demands of the ego. Before expanding of what it's meant to be free, let me remind you once again of what life is like when we are not free. And for that, let me share once again with you one of the very basic teachings of the Buddha, namely the teaching of dependent arising, also called dependent origination, sometimes also called codependent arising, codependent origin, whatever, yeah, different translations. <coughs> this is a teaching 
that highlights the fact that we are inclined to use whatever comes our way in order to reinforce our sense of having a separate identity. I keep talking about this, but it's important because we keep doing it. To do that, according to the dependent origination teaching, dependent arising teaching, we first categorize everything that comes our way as I like it or I dislike it. No in-between category. If it's, not, if it's not like or dislike, then I do not care. We do not care. We forget it. Push it aside. Now, next. If the polarity of like and dislike prevails, <coughs> then the ego, the self, places itself at the center of things by wanting what it likes or rejecting whatever it dislikes. This wanting or rejecting gives the ego a boost, as most of us know for sure firsthand. And then this teaching, of course, extends to the collective. It's not just that I like or I dislike, a group of us likes, a group of us dislikes. And then we identify with the like or the dislike, and in the process we create a collective ego. Somebody has called it the we-go. I, I like that, the we-go. <coughs> then when different groups embrace different likes or dislikes, different wants or rejection, then the potential for conflict emerges. Surely, such egos can be quite innocent and innocuous, as when Italians proclaim the love of pasta. But more often than not, particularly who are exploited by politicians, the end results is real conflict that could end in mass, ki mass killings or even wars. We know that constantly. <coughs> so clearly, letting likes and dislikes become our guide through life is not the wise thing to do, individually or collectively. Wherever we let the likes or dislikes become a primary guide, we will be puffing up our sense of identity at the expense of wisdom. So, what's the alternative? to just following our likes and dislikes. An obvious alternative 
is to open our hearts and minds to care for all, including all humans, including all beings, and of course ourselves included in that, including even the earth, our home. An alternative that needs to make sure that includes very clearly the vibrations of love. Allowing diversity to bring us closer together because diversity provides a, an opportunity to complement each other if we're, you know, if we're somewhat different then we complete the various things that we may need to function well. This gift of complementarity of course is I know that very well as a biologist is very evident in nature For instance, in the cases that are called symbiosis in biology. That is, when different types of organisms establish an alliance of cohabitation that's beneficial, if not essential, to both parties in the equation. Such is the case, for instance, of our bacterial intestinal bacterial flora. Neither of us, neither the host ourselves, or the guests, the bacteria, could survive without each other. I mean, those bacteria are essential for our health and survival, and of course our intestines are also essential for the survival of those bacteria. other forms of complementarity and not life and death situation but still there. Very powerful. Therefore ecologists have found out that the more diversity in the organisms that participate in an ecological system the more robust and lasting the system becomes. Something similar occurs in, in many aspects of life. Take music, for instance. A full orchestra can offer a richness of sounds that is beyond the reach of a single performer. Even the resonance of sounds bouncing back from the walls of the concert hall becomes an essential ingredient of that concept. Similarly, in the concept of our collective 
love. We resonate with each other and with the world in ways that are largely untraceable and yet at the same time essential to our well-being. Just, just a few moments ago when Sister Catherine was here and we were extending our love to her and, and resonating <laughs> in strange ways musically with each other including that ingredient. So it's very important to open our hearts to our reverberation. But even when we do that, a final obstacle in our journey is likely to remain. Let me talk about that, what I call the last obstacle. And the last obstacle that's likely to remain, to persist, is that we tend to see the journey as my journey in subtle ways. We may not have a puffed-up ego, but still there's a limitation of who we allow ourselves to be. Implicitly, may not stand out, but it's there implicitly. Let me illustrate this tendency in my own journey by sharing a tiny small story insignificant apparently that happened to me 40 years ago I still remember it at the time I was at Caltech in California doing research in biology This was long before the time of the internet, for better or for worse. So the only way to keep up with things, with science, was to go to the library, as I did every day. There was a basic or elementary biology library in the building where I worked, and there was a main library, much richer, short distance away. One day, as I was in the elementary and basic library, biology library, looking at abstracts of current publications, I ran, ran into the abstract of a paper on a topic that has had me occupied for previous years, fully occupied for previous years. So I said, hey, wait. I ought to read this paper, so I rushed, walking from the biology library to the main library. And then, halfway along the way, 
I stopped in my tracks. And I asked myself, am I really, really interested in that paper? Which, as I said, had been the center of all my activities for at least a year. And to my surprise, I answered, no, I'm not. So I turned around and went back to my lab. You know, a small thing, really. The, the only extraordinary thing is that I should still remember it. Why this turnaround is still in the back of my mind? Probably because it gave light to the assumption that my interest in research had only to do with scientific facts, which you should, I assumed. It showed me instead that my primary concern was whether or not my career would benefit from that. And since I, I had dropped the subject a few months ago, forget it. When I saw no benefit, I turned back to my lab. It's not that that changed my way of behaving. After this episode, my uh, self-centeredness continued unabated. But at least an alarm went off. A little alarm in my mind went off. I, I still remember it. I can still hear that alarm now. In fact, it took decades of this practice for real transformation to occur. And along the way, there were the few moments when I discovered this, this momentous moment, when I discovered that life can, what life can be like when self-centeredness falls by the wayside. In fact, quite recently, in the spring issue of Buddha Dharma, I read an article entitled Breaking Open by a Tibetan teacher I'd never heard of her before called Pema Khandra Rinpoche which <coughs> describes these moments of revelation of what's life like being free of ego-centeredness and she describes it most effectively so, let me share some excerpts with you, particularly because it, it was a transformative reading for me. It doesn't have to be for you, of course. It's just how one reads it at the time, whether or not one is prepared to understand what she's trying to say. She says, the cause of all suffering can be boiled down to grasping 
into a fictional contrived reality. Pardon me, existence. But what does that mean? If we really come to understand, then there is no longer a container to hold together our normal concepts, to make them coherent. The precious pot shatters. This, this precious pot shatters. And all our valuables roll away like marbles on a table. Reality, as we thought we knew it, is disrupted. The game of contriving an ideal self is suddenly irrelevant. This is sunyata, that's a Pali word, Hindu word too, which gets translated in various ways, most commonly as emptiness. But there's no real correlate in our language no single word of idea that can cover this ground of disrupted reality. Sunyata refers to a direct experience of disruption felt at the core of our being when it, there is no longer any use manufacturing artificial security. We are not talking about giving up our precious human life here, of course. We are talking about giving up on this subtle game. We hold pictures of our, of our ideal self in an ideal world. We imagine that if we could only manipulate our circumstances or other people enough, then that ideal self could be achieved. And in the meantime, we try to pretend we have it together. It's the game we play all the time. We keep postponing our acceptance. Oops. We keep postponing our acceptance of this moment in order to pursue reality as we think it should be. When we suffer disruption, we find we just can't play the game anymore. <coughs> there are times like these in our lives, such as facing death or giving birth, when we are no longer able to manage our outer image, no longer able to suspend, suspend ourselves in pursuit of the ideal self. It's just how it is. We are only human beings. And in these times of crisis, we just don't have the energy to hold it all together. When things fall apart, we can only be as we are. Pretense 
and striving fall away and life becomes starkly simple. simple. The value of such moments is this. We are shown that the game can be given up and that when it is, the emptiness we fear is not what's there. What's there is the bare fact of being. Simple presence remains. Breathing in and out. Waking up and going to sleep. <coughs> the inevitability of the circumstances at hand is compelling enough that for a moment our complexity ceases. Our compulsive manufacturing of contrived existence stops. Perhaps in that underground space we are not even comforting ourselves, not even telling ourselves that everything is okay. We may be too tired to even do that. It's just total capitulation. The contrived self has been emptied out along with our contrived existence and the tiring treadmill of image maintenance that goes along with it. What remains is a new moment spontaneously meeting us again and again. There is an incredible reality that opens up to us in those gaps if we just do not reject rupture. In fact, if we have some reliable idea of what's happening in that intermediate groundless step, space, sorry, rupture can become rapture. So, when I, I read this article, I found that Pema Kandro had guided me into an underground, empty space. I was so touched. A space where I could receive stuff with ha without having to balance it with old stuff stored away where I could be touched by the new, even if it contradicted past experiences. True, there's one thing that may feel particularly unsettling about this scenario, and that is the absence of predictability. In, in this scenario, there's no way of anticipating what's going to happen and how we're going to react to that will happen. 
But, but wait a minute. After all, why should life have to be predictable? True, predictability has practical advantages. Of course, you know, if uh, you approach me here and you book a, a time for an interview, I would like you to, to make the appointment. I'd be inconvenient see if the person fails to show up uh, upstairs in St. Joseph's room 10. And of course, likewise many other circumstances, much more critical perhaps. Fine, of course, the disadvantages. But the other side of the coin, overwhelming predictability is something else. It surely will hamper our chances to be free. <coughs> chances of liberation. How do the teachings invite unpredictability specifically into the picture. Basically by inviting us to be open to receive whatever comes our way without having to conform with any expectations. In particular, teachings in the Tibetan tradition Buddhist, Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, of course, often invite us to confront unpredictability by visiting a stage known as the Bardo. B-A-R-D-O. Now, I used to have difficulties with the Bardo stage because of my scientific background and I still do to some extent because the see traditional it says that after death the soul hangs around waiting for the body of a newly born baby available to receive it. So uh, this, this is difficult to accommodate with many other things in my mind. <coughs> but as I fully understand what Pema Kandra teaches, I see that the Bardo stage refers not only to the transition from a life to the next rebirth, but primarily to those liberating moments when we step, stop climb, claiming a sense of persistence or continuity for our own 
separate life. So, in other words, I can be sitting here and visit my bodily state where I stop being separate. This stops my life, doesn't my life gets out of a picture. It's life. In other words, the bardo refers to any of those moments when the sense of dichotomy, <coughs> of separation between my existence and the existence of not me vanishes. There's just existence, plain and simple. I could say that for me, those bardo moments those moments when none of the stuff that I have accumulated in my mind has a role to play are the most precious moments of my existence. It is in those moments that the practice can truly impregnate me, impregnate us to the depth of our being. Let's just sit in silence for a few moments to come on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.